Welcome to the Living Godcast. Our prayer is that this message speaks to you, impacts you, and inspires you. Please enjoy today's message, and we invite you to contact us if you need prayer, appreciate this word, or would like more information on Church of the Living God. Be blessed today. That song messes me up. The angels dance around you. Gracious. If we could even begin to get a picture of what that looks like. Whew, uh, man. And I love that the, the second part of that verse says, my soul can't dance without you. You know, the reality is I can't do anything without Christ. A good friend of mine said recently, he said, we have to realize we're so dependent on Christ, we can't even surrender without his help. Like, I can't even approach him in surrender without him first drawing me. And the angels in heaven are dancing around him. Like, the Bible gets weird. We have to be okay with that. Like, there's mystery in it. There are six-winged creatures covered in eyeballs surrounding the throne, getting different perspectives of God every time they pass by. And the elders cast their crowns and they worship before the Lamb. It's a celebration going on. And, and if we can picture that, we can, start to, we can start to touch that down here. See, all, if we want to experience what they experience up there, we just have to do down here what they do up there. And that's just worship Him. And we realize that He draws us in and our soul starts to dance. It, we come alive and, oh, I don't know. If you couldn't feel His presence in that, maybe check your pulse. Because He's in the room and that's all that matters. It's all that matters. Man, I'm so grateful to be here this morning. I'm up here from the sunny state of Florida where we've recently moved. Um, we've got a, a house now, and so we're getting the last final touches on that. Um, but when I come here, it's home. And so I'm so thankful to have this opportunity, um, not just as a guest, but as a son. And I'm so thankful uh, to uh, Apostle and Leela and to the entire church leadership staff that they welcome us in because we're family. And they give us opportunities to just pour out what the Lord has laid on our hearts and uh, I'm so thankful that you guys are here this morning, and I pray that uh, what the Lord is going to bring uh, will challenge us, but it'll encourage us and draw us into deeper relationship with Jesus, right? That's what it's all about. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, that's where we're going to have most of our text. Mark chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 2. If you're there, say amen. Amen. All right. If not, it's on the screen behind me. It says, and six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter responded and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tabernacles or temples, one for you, 
one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know how to reply, for they became terrified. And then a cloud formed overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. I want to share a message that the Lord's put on my heart this morning called Cleaning Your Lens. Okay, Cleaning Your Lens. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your presence in this place. I thank you that we don't just we don't just get chill bumps, but we experience the manifest presence of God walk in the room and minister directly to our hearts. And I thank you that that from the very first word that was mentioned this morning, you stepped in and you met us because we are gathered here in your name to lift you up. And so you've met here with us this morning. And I pray that as this message comes forth, Lord, that you would bring unction and utterance of the Holy Spirit. Lord, that you would draw us into deeper fellowship with you, that you would be glorified, that you would be made known, and that we would be forever changed. Jesus, I pray that you would have full preeminence in our lives, Lord. And I pray that every single person here that hears this message will be drawn, will be, will be prodded, will be provoked into deeper encountering relationship with you. God, we love you so much. We can't do anything without you, but I thank you that we don't have to. Because you've given all of yourself to us. You hold nothing back. And so we love on you this morning, Jesus. It's in your wonderful name we pray. Amen. Somebody else say amen. Amen. All right. So Jesus' ministry is, has grown. He's become pretty well known at this point. In fact, he's out feeding the multitudes of people. There's followings of thousands of people gathered around him because not only is he feeding them spiritually, but he's now fed them physically with loaves and fish. And there starts to be this draw on him, and he recognizes it. And in John, we see that he does something rather shocking. He turns after the multitudes are following him and says, now if you really want to be fed by me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And the whole crowd was like, all right, we're out. Like, <laughs> this just got too weird. So much so that from thousands, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, are you guys going to leave too? Right? And so we see then in Mark this moment where he's having a discussion with them. And he says, who, who do you guys even think that I am? Like, who am I? Not because not he was questioning his identity, but he was like, you guys are following me. You've decided to stick around after the crowds. Who do you even think that I am? And Peter boldly says, you're, you're the son of the most high God. You're, you are the Messiah. And Jesus, then we see in Mark, goes from that moment and says, hey, I need the three of you to come with me. And that's where we pick up in chapter 9. It says that he took Peter and James and John with him up on the mountain by themselves. We have to understand, we know about the 12 disciples, right? We always talk about Jesus and he's the 12 disciples. 
Jesus had more than 12 disciples. Those were the apostles of the Lamb. He had an abundance of followers. We know that he even laid hands on and, and sent out 70 to the cities around to minister. And, and when Judas betrayed Jesus and then hung himself, in the book of Acts it says we have to replace Judas. And so the requirements for being selected was that you had to be with Jesus the whole time in his ministry. And so they select out of two people names we've never heard before in the Gospels. What does that tell us? That tells us that there was a crowd. Jesus had followers. But he took this, these three and he said, come with me up on the mountain. Let's get alone together. He invited what's known as kind of an inner circle of the disciples, right, to come up with him. I want you to know that today in the body of Christ, there's a large following. There are millions of people who profess to believe in Christ. There are some who will even be as crazy as to go to church or read their Bible occasionally. And the really radical ones might even do it more than once or twice a week. But I'm telling you that if you will find relationship with him, you will enter into an inner circle that changes your life. Listen, your proximity and relationship is what gives you the invitation into encounter. He had 12 disciples, 70 around him. He had hundreds, thousands. He says, you three, come with me. It was their proximity to him in relationship that led to the invitation for them to experience this encounter. That's how we got to live. I just want more of Jesus. Okay, get closer to him, and he'll give you more of himself. Right? When you walk with somebody, you start to see more of them. Now, with people, sometimes that's not a good thing. Anybody ever heard the, uh, the old saying, never meet your heroes? Right? You see somebody from afar off, and you idolize them. You think, oh, they're awesome. You get to know them, and you start to walk with them, especially in ministry. And then you're like, oh, hmm, I'm going to go back to a distance. It was better over there. Right? <laughs> but with Jesus, the more you find of him, the more you fall in love with him. And so the more you walk with him, the more you'll start to walk like him. The more you listen to him speak, the more you'll start to talk like him. When, when his heart is moved, he'll move your heart, right? And so if we're supposed to represent Christ here on the earth to a lost world and be the invitation for them to come through the door, then we need our own invitations into encounter. And so these three men were invited there because of their proximity to Jesus. Now it says in this account that Jesus took them up on the mountain and he was transfigured. Okay, this word in the, the Greek is really, it's defined as transformed. It's metamorpho. It's the same word in Romans 12 when it says, be ye not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Metamorpho is where we get metamorphosis. It implies that once something changes, it doesn't go back. Okay? So that's what, you know, when we read it in Romans 12, we say, okay, okay, that makes sense. Like, I'm not supposed to be like the world around me, right? But by the renewing of my mind through the Holy Spirit, I'm supposed to be different. I'm a new creature. I'm not supposed to go back. Well, what does that mean for Jesus? 
Jesus was transformed before their very eyes. He starts to shine brightly. It says in Mark specifically, his clothes were so white a launderer couldn't even match that. I mean, no amount of Clorox bleach was going to get that level of white that shone from him. So what does it mean that he was, listen, it means that he was revealed to them. His presentation to them was so transforming that they could never see him the same again. And when you're invited into that level of encounter, when you experience him and he reveals himself as your savior, you can't unsee that. When you're in the middle of a need and he steps in and he's your healer, you'll never see him as anything else. God, I have another need. But listen, I remember when you stepped in back there, you were my healer then. You haven't changed because you were transformed before me. You were revealed, transfigured, and now I see you as healer, and I refuse to believe that you're not still healer. These men saw Jesus in a way that they said, hey, we can't ever see him differently. Like, there's no going back. We can't come off this mountain and act like that never happened. Jesus was forever transformed. And specifically, this word has a definition specific to Christ. It says that specifically his appearance was changed and was resplendent with divine brightness. God's light came pouring through the physical man of Jesus. And it gave them such an illumination that they said, we'll never see him any other way. When you see him as mighty in battle, who's winning your victories, man, that's who he is to you. When you see him as bridegroom, when you see him as soon coming king, you latch onto those perspectives and they forever mark you. It's what the angels do when they surround the throne, those perspectives of him. They see something new about his character and about his nature. But guess what? It doesn't say that when the angels surround the throne, they see him, then they forget, and that's why they have to pass back around. They see him, that perspective forever shapes them, and then they go around again and they get another perspective. It's a transformation of the revealing of the Lamb of God, even to the angels in heaven. How much more to us on earth as we walk in relationship? Because we got something they don't have. We're the redeemed. God doesn't call any of the angels in heaven son. But he calls us son and daughter. And so he's been revealed to us in a way that we can't ever see him any other way. And you hold on to that. In the moments where you're going through a storm, wait, I've seen you as peace. And I refuse to let go of that transformation that you've shown me in, in my life. That's what he did for these men. But Peter, man, don't we love Peter? I love Peter because he reminds me that, like, sometimes we get it wrong and Jesus still loves us. Mark, right, the, the gospel of Mark, it wasn't Mark's perspective. It was Peter's perspective. So if you read it, theologians will tell you that Peter basically gave his gospel account and Mark wrote it down. So when it says here, Peter says, Rabbi, it's, it's good that we're here with you and that Moses and Elijah are here and we should build three temples, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And it says in Mark, but Peter didn't know what to say and he was terrified. They were terrified. That's Peter's firsthand account going, 
Man, it was wild up there on that mountain. I didn't know what to say, what to think, so I just blurted out, we should build a temple for all of you, right? I love that you get a little bit of the, the perspective of Peter more so in, in Mark. Now, the, the Mount of Transfiguration story is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels. But here, I love it because Peter's really the only one you hear speak in this exchange. And so Mark is the account that I really think portrays it well. Peter didn't know how to reply, so he said something that he thought sounded good. See, religious practices often sound well-meaning until they become additions or even replacements for Christ. Because at that point, it's no longer religion, it's idolatry. When you start to say, Man, Jesus, it's awesome that you're here, but also Moses and Elijah, I don't know what to do. Let's just build temples to all of them for worship. From a religious piety standpoint, it's like, oh, he, was, he wanted to consecrate this moment as special. He, that sounds good, except for in well-meaning, what he did was propose additions. And that very thing is idolatry. See, Paul had to write several letters about this, but my favorite that he wrote was to the church in Colossae. He wrote Colossians. So turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Paul is in prison with Timothy. A disciple of his comes to him and says, Paul, I bring news from Colossae, from the Colossian church. And Paul's like, awesome, how are they doing? Man, they're doing great. They love the Lord. They're faithful. They're serving each other. It's great. Paul's like, okay, so everything's good, and he's like, well, there is one thing. There's influence from other neighboring cities, and well, they've started to add things. See, the reason why the letter of Colossians was written is because a group of people who loved the Lord had adopted a mentality of Jesus and can I tell you that there's not anything that can follow Jesus? It's not Jesus and anything. Jesus is heaven's only message. It is only Jesus that brings us into relationship. It is not Jesus and our works. It's not Jesus and our giftings, Jesus and our mega ministries, Jesus and our prayer life. It's Jesus. Like that, that's it. So all of these Religious practices and fasts and rituals and what Paul even calls angel worship was, wasn't angels. It was actually like messengers of God, preachers. They were worshiping these men. They started to add all of this stuff. And Paul said, let me define for you that it's not Jesus and anything. And he writes Colossians in chapter 1. He wastes no time. Verse 15, he says, he is the image of the invisible God. And everything was created by him and for him. There's nothing that can be added to him. And it is his work on the cross that makes you able to stand innocent before the Father. It's not your rituals. It's not your fast. It's not your new moons. It's not anything. It is Jesus. And so in chapter 2, he's continuing this, this thought. And he says... Concerning fast specifically, he said, these are matters, right? Religious 
practices and rituals and fasts. These are matters which do have the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and humility and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Charles, Sp- Charles Spurgeon has a, a, a pretty... I, I, anybody know who Charles Spurgeon is? He was, he was known as one of the most prolific pastors of all time. Um, he, but he didn't pull any punches. So regarding this topic, Charles Spurgeon said, men like to fast from food, but they'll gorge themselves on pride. The reality is, you can fast from food all you want, but if all you're doing is abstaining from food, that's called a diet. It's not a fast unless you're feasting on him, on Christ, on the bread of life. See, too much we've made it about practices and earning our way into God's favor. And so we've done repetitious things. We've fasted. We've, we've self-abased ourselves, as Paul says. And all of a sudden we realize that the absence of food is not what it's about. It's about creating a hunger in which we feast on him. If you want to stay hungry for God, consume more of him. Stay in his word. Stay in relationship with him. But Paul said, you are fasting for fasting's sake, and that won't move you one step closer to God because it's all about the man, Jesus Christ. And so we see that very principle from Colossians still in play today in the modern-day church. We love our, like, let's unite and have 21-day fasts, and let's put it on a banner, and let's do all this stuff, and that's awesome. Except for, we make it so much about how hard it is not to eat chocolate for a month, and nothing about Jesus. Can I also give you just something that I I feel like the Lord has, has taught me? If the Lord didn't draw you into the fast, then don't fast. Because he has to give you the grace to sustain it. And he will give you the invitation into. Now, there are times when you get invited into a fast and your heart is forever changed. You, are, you, you experience a transfiguring of the Lord in your relationship with him. And so your knee-jerk reaction is, hey, that worked really well. Next month I'm going to do the same thing. But without the invitation into it, you won't have the grace to sustain it. And that goes with anything in church. I feel called to be a pastor. I feel called to be a worship leader. I feel called to whatever. If he didn't invite you into it, you won't have the grace to sustain it. Right? And so we have to be careful in what sounds like wisdom, but is really self-made religion. Now, throughout the Old Testament, God instructed men to set up memorial stones. Right? They set up stones to remember The purpose was they were to mark the places of encounter. But he never asked them to establish shrines where the object of worship was the encounter. Jacob wrestles with God. He sets up memorial stones to remember that God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. If he makes that place a shrine where the worship is the encounter, he's missed God altogether. If we make shrines to revivals of the past and we worship the revival instead of the reviver who was in our midst, we have missed the purpose of revival. 
If we build fancy stages and tabernacles and all this stuff, and what we worship is our programs and not the man Jesus, we've missed it altogether. And that's what religion invites us into, but relationship says, I'm the only one you should see. And so we pray for things that sound good, but oftentimes we will worship the answer to prayer or the gift more than the gift giver. That, can I tell you, was the chief error of the prodigal son. He said, Dad, I want what you have. I just don't want you. Inheritance was supposed to be passed on in Jewish culture on the deathbed of the patriarch of the family. Why? Because his legacy, everything that he's put into his life was supposed to be handed over. The prodigal son said to his dad, who was very much still alive, Dad, give me the inheritance now because I want what you can give me. I just don't want you. And that has become a problem in the church. God, I need a healing. You get the healing, and then you say, oh, okay, let's start a healing ministry. Well, did you get an invitation into that? Because if you don't have the grace, you won't sustain it. Right? It's awesome when God comes in in mighty ways and and we encounter him. But he doesn't. Give us the encounter to worship the encounter. He gives us more of himself, so we're moved more in relationship with him. We have to guard against what sounds right in religion. So pertaining to Peter's suggestion, a cloud forms, and a voice comes from it affirming Christ. And it says, suddenly they looked around and saw no one except Jesus alone. I want to tell you that we have to clean our lens so that we only see Jesus. Dan Ortland, he's a a Presbyterian minister. He says, we hold a camera, and our theology is the lens by which we capture the image of Christ rightly. If you have a bad image of Christ, if you have a lacking image of Christ, then you have a gospel deficiency of who in this word it says that he is. But it's not the end. That can be fixed by feasting on the word, by getting into his presence, by saying, Holy Spirit, come and lead me into truth like Jesus promised that he would. And say, draw me into right seeing. Draw me into a place where I see only you. Clean my lens. This is the invitation. See, Hebrews 12, 2 says, it is looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. To look unto Jesus is to look away from all else. You can't have double vision. You can't focus on Christ and your ministry, Christ and everything else, Christ and this relationship over here, Christ and your job. It has to be Christ. Then everything is done from the perspective of looking at Jesus. But any, listen, anytime you hold on to something in your heart and say, it's Jesus and, Jesus and this habit, Jesus and this hobby, Jesus and this relationship, Jesus and even if it's not sin, whatever it is in your heart, especially if it's not sin. If you're saying, Jesus, it's you and this other thing, then you are building two temples. And we're not called to build two temples. We're called to be a temple for the dwelling of the Spirit of God to live inside of us, to be all over us, and to cause people to walk by us and let things in the spiritual realm get rearranged in them for them to say, I want what that person has. We're not called to build multiple temples. We're called into relationship with him, so we see him and him alone. So what does it mean to look at Jesus? It means to give him our attention and our affection, 
to find moments of escape where you spend time with just him and you invite him into every part of your day. The fallacy is we taught people that there's a difference between the sacred and the secular. Your job is secular, but church is sacred. No, Jesus wants it all. Jesus wants to go to work with you. Jesus wants to go to school with you. Jesus especially wants to go to Walmart with you or the gas pump. Jesus wants to go with you everywhere. The problem is we worship him for five minutes when we're in our prayer time, and then we put him on the shelf and we walk out the door without him. And we go to work at doing what? Constructing temples that are for everything but him. We are called to live a life where we give him our attention. I just want to finish with this, this last thought here. God never disappoints us. God is incapable of failure, so he's incapable of disappointing us. But if you've ever been let down, I want to tell you something. You've been let down by your version of God. I heard a worship leader one time say, they were singing the song, um, um, You Are Good. And it gets to the bridge where it says, you're never going to let me down. And this worship leader said, I'll confess, I, I have trouble singing that. I don't think I can sing it because I feel let down. And the reality is it wasn't God that let them down. It was their image of God. It was their version of God. But when you allow him to clean your lens and you see him rightly, you realize that even when the situation didn't work out the way you thought it would or you expected it to, it is him and his perfection that gave you actually what you needed. But are we willing in humility to surrender to him and say, I want to see you so much so that if I've created an image of you that's wrong, that I want that gone. Leonardo da Vinci, famous painter, Mona Lisa, said something very profound. It's always stuck with me. He said, God created man in his image, so man returned the favor. Right? God created us in his image, and now we sit here and we define what God's supposed to look like to us. Well, God, you're supposed to do this. You're supposed to answer the prayer this way. Jesus invites us into moments. He invited this proximity of relationship, this close circle, into a moment where he peeled back the covers of heaven, revealing himself in a way that would forever change them. And in it came encounter to even see Moses and Elijah and the response that he taught us there through Peter, thankfully opening his mouth, was that he said, listen, it's not about what sounds good. It's about keeping your eyes on Jesus. And when the voice affirms him and they look back, it says they saw no one but Jesus alone. If we will focus our attention on him and see only him and then allow the Holy Spirit and our reading of the word in relationship with him to then clean the lens so we see him rightly, that everything we do in our life will be postured with our eyes on him. And it's our eyes on him that maintain the intimacy of relationship that we're supposed to walk with every single day of our lives. People have asked me recently, how do you go through hard things? You go through hard things by staring at Jesus. How do you go through the good times? You especially go through the good times by staring at Jesus. And from him, do everything. And then you'll never have to do it alone. Amen? Stand with me this morning. I hope this has been okay. I hope it's, it's challenged us to want to pursue only Jesus and seeing him rightly. Because if you do, then the transformation that takes place 
in your life through the revelation of Jesus Christ will forever make you different. And it's what we need to get through every day. And it's, more importantly, once you've got eternal, eternal destination, it's what the world needs us to be so that they can meet who we've met. They need the same Jesus that scooped down and rescued me in my lowest moment. So I'm doing the world a disservice if I don't live like he gets everything. Right? Such a beautiful thing that he's invited us into. So I want to pray for you this morning. Jesus, we thank you for this message, Lord. I pray that it sinks deeply into our hearts. That the affection that we have for you is stirred and that the fire that we burn with is stoked hotter, Lord. I pray that you would give us clean lenses to first see only you and to secondly see you rightly. To see you in your glory for who you are, in your radiant, resplendent brightness. Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us in a whole new way. Jesus I pray that you'd be so real to us and that the Holy Spirit would make Jesus so known to us that it would forever change the way we even do the dishes. Let us not do anything the same because we're walking in everything with him. God, draw us in a deeper relationship with you every day and help us to be a light and an invitation for someone else to meet the same Jesus that we walk with. God, I pray for this people. This people here this morning, I pray that they would fall more and more madly in love with you all the days of their life, and that we would see the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. We love you this morning. We thank you. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you so much. Have a great week. Thank you for listening today to The Living Godcast. We trust and pray that you are blessed by today's word. If you would like to contact us for prayer or for more information about Church of the Living God, please visit our Facebook page at WinCityCOLG or give us a call at 859-745-1865.